Well, what do you say to a friend's question when you want to stay non-committal but not come across as mean-spirited? So, say someone asks you to help them move. How can you stay neutral and yet not make it seem like you're probably not going to help them? So, one article I found online is, is helpful. It's titled, Five Excellent, Vague, and Non-Committal Answers. How to say no without saying no, but not saying yes either. Uh, The first suggested answer is, that should be fine. The key word there apparently is should. As the author of the article puts it, with that one word you hit the beautiful sweet spot between I will do this and life's so unpredictable I might not do this, but you can never ever blame me. The fourth is very similar. Shouldn't be a problem. I feel like I use that one. Uh, According to the article, this answer maintains a necessary vagueness where the other person assumes that you mean it shouldn't be a problem because they trust you, but you mean it shouldn't be a problem because you're not going to do it. It's 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 like a little polite white lie. Like, yeah, shouldn't be a problem for me because I'm not going to be there. As entertaining as it can be, though, to think through how we might use these little diplomatic answers in our day-to-day lives, what about when it comes to more serious matters? So particularly in the area of allegiance to Jesus, allegiance to the king that we read about in the Gospel of Luke, is there a way to remain noncommittal? See, there are plenty of ways to respond to Jesus, right? Outright rejection, hatred, agnosticism, apathy, love, delight, submission. There are are plenty of ways. The list can run long in, in different kind of nuanced ways we could respond to Jesus. But is a state of neutrality possible? Can you remain disinterested or, or somehow balance Jesus with the other authorities in your life? Well, as we come to, to Luke chapter 11 this morning, we'll see who Jesus is and how we must respond to him. And it turns out being neutral is impossible with Christ. So follow along as I read Luke 11, starting in verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons... And the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not scatter with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Simple thesis statement for our sermon this morning. Jesus is the stronger man, so submit to his kingship. Jesus is the stronger man, so submit to his kingship. And we're going to look at that in the two parts of that thesis statement. So first, that first half, Jesus is a stronger man. Look there at verse 14. So Jesus has encountered this this man who is oppressed by a demon Uh, The demon has made this man mute. He cannot speak. In Matthew's parallel account, in his gospel, this man is also blind. So he cannot speak. He cannot see. This is the, the presenting evidence of the demon's oppression in his life. You can't miss it. But Jesus comes along and he drives this powerful demon out. Luke writes that the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Now, this is nothing new if you've been tracking along in Luke's gospel. Jesus has cast out many demons up until this point, and often leading those observing to wonder at his authority and his power. Where does this come from? How can he do this? Even in the past few chapters, he's kind of multiplied this ministry and sent out his disciples, first as a 12 and then as a 72, with this same authority. But here in verse 15... In the aftermath of this exorcism, an accusation is leveled at Jesus. Luke says, But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Again, if you look at Matthew's parallel account, we discover that those promoting this theory are Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of the day who, it's going to become more and more apparent, are not fans of Jesus. Uh, So in this particular instance, they see what he's done. They see that it's supernatural. And so they claim that it's actually not from God. It's from the evil one. The name Beelzebul harkens back to an Old Testament pagan idol. In the context of this passage, it's clear. This is another title, another way to name Satan himself, the prince of of demons. So, according to the Pharisees, Jesus, the reason that you can marvel at this display of, of power is because he's receiving power and authority over demons from the one who has power and authority over demons, the prince of demons, Satan himself. This isn't the only response to Jesus in this text. Look, look there in verse 16, you'll see others react not with this sort of demonic conspiracy theory, but with uncertainty. They're just unsure about Jesus. They're holding out for more evidence. They want more signs. 
It's possible, since they say a sign from heaven, that they want to see something kind of big picture. Maybe they want to see the heavens rent open. And we'll, we'll pick that theme up more next week, Lord willing, when we see more about this search for signs. But for now, Jesus reacts and responds by paying specific attention to the first accusation. So what does he make of it? What does he make of this theory that he's actually in cahoots with the devil? Luke writes, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, there's a scary phrase, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. He's making a common sense argument. He's saying if if Satan is casting out Satan, Satan is going to fall, right? And he makes that argument explicit in verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus shows the nonsense of this speculation. In his book on, on Luke, Mike McKinley writes, their plan is perfect except for the fact that it makes no sense at all. You know, it's, it's July 4th. We're aware of the patriotic mantra, united we stand, divided we fall, right? The principle holds true. Satan divided is Satan fallen. See, church, Satan hates God. And he hates the image of God in us. And so his oppression of this world, his oppression of God's image bearers, is an oppression that seeks to dehumanize and distort the image of God in us. He wants with all his power to humiliate God and and rip away the glory he alone is due through us. You can see the oppression of Satan in this man, right? Certain specific image-bearing things in his life are taken away. He is not able to speak. He's not able to see. But what has Jesus come to do? Remember back in Luke 4, he, he quotes Isaiah and he says in the synagogue that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. So Jesus has come to roll back the effects of sin and Satan and death. He has come to bring us back into true wholeness of humanity, into the full status of image-bearing men, women, and children, bringing glory once again to our Creator, finding our joy in Him. And so, if this is what Jesus is doing, and this is what Satan is doing, they're mutually exclusive. What Jesus is doing cannot be explained as coming from Satan's authority. It's anti-Satan. And so Jesus drives home the foolishness of this argument even further in verse 19. He says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So there are different views on what Jesus is talking about here. Maybe He's referring to his own disciples who are, in fact, Jews. They're sons of Israel and all the exorcisms and healings they've been doing. I tend to think he's he's probably talking just about the Jewish onlookers, the crowds right there themselves. And, And whatever the case, though, he's saying that if they're not careful, they're going to start indicting themselves with the same accusation they level at him. Because if if they have some sort of power over evil spirits, and if that looks somewhat similar to what Jesus is doing, well, by what power are they doing it? If Jesus is doing this by Satan, then 
I mean, they must be as well. But there in verse 20, he gets down to the main issue at hand. No, he is not in league with the devil. He is doing what he's been proclaiming his mission to be, to bring the kingdom of God and to inaugurate the rule and reign of the one true God on earth. Uh, some of you were here a, years back, a few years back when we walked through the book of Exodus together. And, and you might recall in, in chapter 8 of Exodus, as the plagues were beginning, how, how the magicians would try to like spar with Moses a little bit and see who, had, who were able to mimic each other's powerful moves. But in, in Exodus 8, right after the third plague of gnats, which I think has been in Loudoun County of late, uh, they, they come to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. And fast forward here to Luke 11, in another conflict between good and evil, in another conflict between spiritual forces of light and spiritual forces of darkness, Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Basically, face it, people. These actions cannot be the actions of a satanic messenger This man must be from God. There in verses 21 and 22, Jesus finally puts a bow on this with a parable. Very Jesus-like. And I don't know about you, I love this parable. It's brief, but I love it. I mean, if if you think through history and literature and movies... You know this often repeated theme of of battle, of of power, of warfare, of struggle. And in and of itself, it's not good. It's gruesome. It's it's ugly. But the reason I think we're, we're continually drawn back into those sorts of stories is this search for and desire for a hard fought victory for the good. There's something about that storyline that just keeps drawing us in. We want to see how evil is, how evil evil is, and we want to see that vanquished, even through great cost. Indeed, the the cost, the sacrifice, becomes beautiful when we see the good prevail. We're drawn to that type of story, and we desperately want it to be true. That's why we keep reading those stories. This past Friday night, I, I finished reading the final book in... Uh, Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather Saga, which some of you have, have recommended to me. And now I highly recommend back to anybody sitting here. But as I read, especially those last 200 pages, and, and as, you know, when I could, I kept wanting to get back to them, I was drawn to this tense conflict between the incredibly good and the incredibly evil once again. And my soul, I found out, was invested in who was going to win. Why? Because that's the story of our lives. That's the story of the world. There's something deep that resonates within us when we read those sorts of stories. And and what's glorious, church, is that when we get sucked into the good versus evil drama in a book or a movie or even a song, we're understanding in a way better the truest story of all. For what has Jesus come to do? What has God planned to do from before all time? He has planned to defeat evil through sacrifice. And save his people. Jesus frames this reality in, this, in a story about a battle. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. A strong man in this picture is Satan. He is armed with power and might. 
and oppression. His palace is is well guarded. It's well fortified. Uh, His goods, which are sinful humankind, are kept secure. The, The word there in the original Greek is at peace. His goods are at peace because there's nobody to threaten this fortress. Just imagine this impregnable fortress, this palace with its powerful leader. Everyone in his, in his, under his reign are doomed because they're not going anywhere unless someone topples him and there's no one to topple him. Until the stronger man appears and the hero rides in. Listen to Jesus' story. He says, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. The strong man is overwhelmed by the stronger man. He is crushed. His armor is stripped from him, leaving him in humiliation and shame. It calls to mind Paul's words Jane read earlier from Colossians. You, Christian, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what did the cross do? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's speaking of spiritual forces of darkness. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the cross, the spiritual forces of evil were defeated. That's the story, that's the true story of your life, Christian. You were dead in your sin, but then one stronger appeared. You were locked in the prison of your own condemnation, but then one stronger appeared. You were rightly indicted by all of Satan's accusations. He didn't know the half of it, but when one stronger appeared, you were saved. This is a story of stories. It's the divine story. And Jesus is the hero. He says there that he divides the spoil brings to mind isaiah 53 we read these verses about the suffering servant and we read these verses about taking our sin and the sheep who had gone astray bearing the wrath of god for them and then at the end of the of the chapter in isaiah 53 we read therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong see through the weakness of the cross through the weakness of the stronger man Through his death, Jesus overcame Satan and then divided the spoils of victory. What were those spoils? One scholar writes, the spoil is the whole of salvation benefits, forgiveness, the spirit, his gifts, living eternally with the king. These spoils Jesus divides among his people, among us. He leads us out of our dungeon in victorious procession. The stronger man has come. And so Jesus says in verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are only two options. You either submit to King Jesus or you're under the rule of the evil one. That 
might sound superstitious or far-fetched to some of you. It certainly does to most people in our culture. That doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, the more you think about it, that storyline of the history of the world might make more sense of the world you see right now in 2021 than any storyline you've ever heard. So, you only have two ways to respond to Jesus, friend. You, you may be like, no, I'm just apathetic. I, l- I learned recently about this thing called apatheism. Have you heard about this? Yeah, I just, there might be a God, there might not be a God, I just don't care. But that doesn't, that, according to Jesus, that means you're against him. Or you might be fine with Jesus, just as long as he doesn't tell you everything to do in your life. As long as he keeps your personal places to you, to you, Jesus says that means you're against him. Christianity indeed does t- teach things like love and acceptance, even tolerance. But when it comes to allegiance, it says you only have two choices. Daryl Bach writes, even agnosticism is a decision against Jesus A war is going on, and one must choose sides. There are no Switzerlands in this war. And so if if we, if Jesus as a stronger man, if Jesus' kingship requires a response from us, that leads us to the second half of our thesis statement today. Jesus is a stronger man, so submit to his kingship. We see this truth there in the second part of our passage. So look at verse 24. Jesus tells this somewhat obscure, interesting, mysterious story, which I admit I didn't really understand at all until I dug into it more this past week. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. So there we get this glimpse into the spiritual realm. This demon, this oppressor of God's creation, having been cast out of a person, goes on the hunt for a new victim. But Jesus says, finding none, it says, ah, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it, it finds the house swept and put in order. So then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So this person has gone from the frying pan to the fire. Why? Well, I mean, something seemingly good had happened at first, right? A demon was cast out of him. But what happened then? Well, the man cleaned up his house. He put it in order. But he didn't submit to the king. In Matthew's gospel, he says this man's house is empty. It's waiting to be lived in. So perhaps it's like he's had some sort of spiritual encounter, maybe some kind of religious experience. It's certain that he's cleaned up his act. Perhaps he's gotten more upstanding in society. He started to act a little bit more respectably. But he's not bowed his knee to the king. He's not responded to Jesus in repentance and faith. He's really responded with nothing at all. I mean, it seems like, you know, he's happy with his newfound freedom. I mean, a demon didn't make his life really great. And so he's happy with that, but he hasn't installed a new tenant or a a new landlord in the house, right? He's not committed to the king. 
The purpose of this story, then, is don't just clean up your life, but surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Think about it. The religious leaders criticizing Jesus here are just that. They're religious. They're respectable. They're put together. But they, even they, have not bowed the knee to King Jesus. They're instead looking for ways to poke holes in his argument or in his power and maybe even get the crowd to think that he's actually the enemy of God. Church, let us beware lest we rest in some kind of religiousness, some sort of clean exterior, and just set ourselves up to be servants of evil all over again. We must live for the king. You know, church community is a huge part of that. So as we gather together in our corporate worship services, as we gather in our homes or across coffee tables before work, in our community groups, we get to know each other. That's unavoidable. And we're able then to to better call each other to obedience, to faith, to repentance, to, to honest trust lest we fool ourselves into thinking we can have it both ways we can have jesus end our own rule which turns out to be satan's rule so at loudon valley baptist church we want to be a community that constantly points one another to the stronger man and to the allegiance we must have for him alone for we are not saved for ourselves we're saved for him so christian If you have submitted to Jesus, if you have bowed the knee to the king, rejoice in this truth. The forces of darkness that might assail your soul encounter not an empty house waiting to be inhabited, but one with a ruler, one with a protector, one with a stronger man, one who repels the forces of evil so they don't have a chance. That is following Jesus. That's trusting in him. That's the benefits of allegiance to and faith in him alone. Maybe you're here and and you're not a Christian. We're really happy you're here. Uh, I know it can be daunting to walk into a church uh, when you know that you probably don't believe the same things we do. But I think one of the things you can take away from this is that you can be interested in Jesus. You can, you can be attracted by his teaching. You can find his nature appealing, his, his calm demeanor that you see in the Gospels for the most part. But just because you think that doesn't mean you follow him. Jesus laid down his life to take the wrath of God against sin. He set aside his glory in heaven. He set aside his throne to take on the cross and to take on, the, take on himself the filth of our sin. So that if we would repent and trust in him, we would be washed clean and saved. That that is full throttle salvation. That's all the way salvation. And so it demands nothing less than full throttle response. We do nothing to earn Jesus' salvation, but we do give him everything. We give him our very hearts. We give him our very selves. Because we know there's no in-between point when it comes to Christ. You're either with him or you're against him. If you, if you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you more about that afterwards. Welcome to come over to the Roberts for lunch. We'd love to share with you more about what it means to find Jesus to be your king. 
and church family, we, we started out by thinking about some fun little non-committal phrases, right? But perhaps for you, you're sobered at this point because you find that you can often use that sort of same non-committal heart language when speaking of your relationship with Jesus. Sure, you believe in him. You always have. But you know you're not completely invested. You know you're, you're tempted to have fallbacks. Well, if that's you this morning, remember that blessing and that the state of blessedness comes from following the king, not anybody else. Look at verse 27. This is the final response to the king we see in our passage today. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. This woman blesses Mary. And by doing so, blesses Jesus. That's kind of how, you know, blessedness worked or or beatitudes worked here in her speech. And she's actually right. I mean, if you flip back to Luke chapter 1, you'll see Elizabeth say, Blessed are you, Mary right? Jesus is not saying she's wrong. She's, she's right. But, but he reminds her that blessedness comes from true faith that hears and obeys, not just by being related to Jesus, as Mary was. And Jesus has said this earlier in chapter 8. Remember when his, his mother and his brothers come to him and the crowd's like, hey, Jesus, your mother and your bros are here. And he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He's saying, true blessing comes from not just being attached to me, being related to me, growing up in the church, knowing Christianese. True blessing is hearing my words and doing them. True blessing is submitting to the king. See, it's possible even to be in awe of God and enjoy studying him and yet still not believe not trust, not commit. It's kind of like being a big fan of, of air, aircraft. It's like admiring a certain airplane's sweet design and, and ridiculous power, hanging up posters of it in your room, reading books, watching documentaries about its construction, being fascinated with its mechanical ingenuity, and yet never hopping on board, never trusting your life to it, never, never taking a flight in its cabin, Friend, Jesus knows the thoughts of men. You cannot fool him like you can fool others. So don't merely hear him. Don't be okay with a mere religious encounter. Follow him. Don't just leave your house empty. Fill it with Christ. Yes, there are non-committal ways to respond to a friend asking you to help them move. But there are only two ways to respond to Jesus. You're either with him or you're not. And so, Christian, won't you pray with me now as we again commit our lives to submitting to this wonderful king? Satan would have us believe that true freedom lies apart from his seemingly constrictive reign. You know, he's whispering the same things he whispered to Eve. His, his, his rule is not good for you. You're going to be like him. You're going you're gonna to bust all the boundaries if you just, if you just leave what, what constricts you. 
But no, King Jesus loves us. He has designed us for his glory. It is not when we wrestle free of his embrace, but when we submit to it, to the stronger one, that we find what we were truly made for. Jesus has led us out in victorious parade from our prison of sin, Satan, hell, and death. We are his forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we surrender to you. We submit to you. You're the king. We pray for the members of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church's family gathered here this morning. Lord, perhaps by your spirit you have prodded and poked at an area of our lives where we are not submitting to you. Lord, our house is open to you. Fill it. Fill every room, every nook, every cranny. And dwell us by your spirit. Have your way with us. Thank you for saving us when we were your enemy. In the name of Jesus, amen.